Well, as uh, mentioned, just to set the right expectations, this is not going to be a sermon. So, and I do recognize that it is a Sunday evening as well. So I will uh, try as much as possible for this to be engaging, but I make no promises. Now, before we jump into this, uh, and again, it's great to be able to just restart the School of Theology and just really delve into making theology more accessible or at least um, really running into these great doctrines uh, into the pew, into the congregation. So uh, before we jump into it, why don't we just, again, commit this time to the Lord. So let's just quickly shoot up another arrow of prayer. Blessed Father, as we delve into theology, help us in- indeed to keep minds undistracted. Oh, Father, we just pray that we may indeed just focus on your truth tonight as we seek to really delve into how you've revealed yourself and how you've revealed uh, how we are to live in this world in a way which is succinct and really systematic as we go through the pages of Scripture. So, Father, help keep tiredness at bay and just help us to be able just to have minds which are clear and open so we can retain uh, what just piece, bits and pieces that we learned this evening. And so, Father, we just pray all these things in Sunday's blessed name. Amen. Alrighty. So as we delve into uh, Block 4, the introduction to Baptist ecclesiology, I just want to put, a, uh, I just want to put another caveat out there that uh, in many respects, this is really just looking at providing the structure tonight and which subsequent Evenings will then go onto and build onto, etc. So, really, just the structure. Okay, just remember that. All right. So, Baptist introduction to Baptist ecclesiology. Well, in many evangelical churches today, uh, in many evangelical uh, churches today, only that which involves in believing Christ, believing in Christ, only that really matters. Everything else can be discounted. And like many other theological doctrines, ecclesiology, that is, the doctrine of the church, has often been relegated as being non-essential. It doesn't matter. It's not about believing in Christ. It's, you don't pay that much attention to it. Now, while this is true, as it's not regarding salvation, so it's not on the same importance as soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, or even the doctrine of the Trinity or, or theology proper, the doctrine of God, it, it, whilst it's true regarding that the right doctrine of the church doesn't save, we recognize at the same time that God has spoken on a whole range of matters and that God doesn't waste his breath. As such, there is a responsibility upon all Christians to study not just some parts of Scripture, but the whole counsel of God and wrestle with what God has stated, not in just some pages of Scripture, but in the totality of Scripture. Subsequently, we will seek to commence and wrestle with and uncover what God has to say about this somewhat neglected topic, looking at what and who the church is, its scriptural basis, its defining mark, and its organization over the coming weeks. Whilst I will try to provide other ecclesiological positions or other positions on the doctrine of the the church in the weeks to come, the next five weeks will unashamedly be from a Baptist position. 
I just want to put that out there. I will try to be as honest as I can in representing other positions, but this is really coming from a Baptist understanding of, of the doctrine of the church. That's hence the name of this series, Introduction to Baptist Ecclesiology. Now, what is a church? What is a church? Well, it's helpful to start off at the very beginning with a working definition of what the church is. And you might, might have heard of the popular saying that the church is not the building, it's the people within. Now, this is an important corrective to, to any idea that somehow the building plays a crucial idea in what makes up the church. In fact, whilst many people today call the building a church, and it's been used this way, admittedly, for quite some time, ever since going back to the early church, at least the 4th century, Scripture evidences that the church is not an impersonal, physical structure, but a personal, organic entity that takes place when we are together. Note Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, so that passage I read out for you earlier. In 1 Corinthians 11, which is a passage familiar, I'm sure that as I read that, everybody was like, hey, that's the Lord's Supper passage, which we hear. But that's an interesting preface to that. But as we go into that passage, which many of us are familiar with, when we look at what Paul states in verses 17 to 22, he goes, now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you Come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together, then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. Now, taking the main point of this passage aside, which is ultimately Paul rebuking the Corinthians for the division that they were causing when they gathered, This passage confirms precisely what the 18th century Baptist theologian John Gill notes when he states that the church is not the place but the assembly that met in it. It is called the church. And their coming together in the church may intend no other than some of the members coming and meeting together with the rest of the church. Effectively, what what John Gill was getting at is when you look at this passage... The church is a church when it gathers together. When you gather together as a church. It's not the building in which they gathered, but it was them who gathered. So effectively then, at its simplest meaning at this point, the church is the community of believers which gather together. After all, this is what the word church actually means. As the Greek word ecclesia or ecclesia, which is translated church in our Bibles, literally means assembly or gathering. Why church got used in a way to simply denote the building where Christians gathered 
may be down to several reasons. Firstly, it likely became the byword for the place where Christians gathered. Obviously, as Christians gathered in one place time and time again, it probably became an easy byword just to call that place the church because that's where the church actually met. Especially when Christians were able to actually have freedom of worship in the 3rd and 4th century onwards. Uh, Before then, they didn't actually have a place. They had to meet in people's homes and other places which became available. But after after freedom of worship was extended to Christians, uh, particularly in the Edict of Milan in about 315 AD, that's when Christians actually had places in which they became reoccurring uh, centres of worship. But secondly, it is immensely likely that the reason why the building got called church was because it was seen as a preferable term to differentiate the place where Christians met as opposed to the pagan temples and the Jewish synagogues. It's likely that's why this, this places got called churches. So but as we go into later in the series, when scripture talks about the church, it is not referring to a building, but to the believing community that gathers. However, before we go further into what the New Testament teaches on church, and there is a lot, we must recognize the progressive relevatory nature of scripture. And that really you can't have an understanding of church proper without understanding how the church relates to the Old Testament. As if there was simply no relationship between the two. Now, whilst many Christians, especially over the last several hundred years, have argued precisely how much continuity exists between Israel and the New Testament church, there is a clear connection here between the two that simply cannot be overlooked. Now, recognizing ultimately that the Bible is 66 books, it ultimately tells one story about one Redeemer who brings redemption to life for both Jew and Gentile. We must take a step back, though, and look at the overarching story that began in the garden. As we know, our first parents fell in Genesis 3. Man was initially created to serve God, to worship God, to praise God. But in the garden, we know that man chose disobedience, over obedience. Sin occurred, and the relationship between God and man was subsequently ruptured, with mankind being cursed, but also given a promise. Of course, many of us know of this in Genesis 3, whereby we are told that Satan and death's grasp upon humanity, will not be forever. Hallelujah for that. And the Redeemer would come who would crush the serpent's power. Now, from that point onwards, the search is on through the pages of the Old Testament as to who will be this promised Redeemer who is to come. But at the same time, we see God's steadfast love towards and he's continued bestowed grace upon man as he continues, seeks to continue to gather a people for himself. In Genesis 12, he called and made promises to Abram that all nations would be blessed through him and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. 
This leads eventually to the formation in the Old Testament, eventually, to the, uh, to the formation of the nation of Israel. They were to be his chosen people. His bride, Ezekiel 16, uh, sorry, 6 to 4, and his flock. God tells them at the giving of the covenant at Sinai that he would be their God and they would be his people. They were to be God's people who would faithfully follow and worship him, reflecting him to the other nations, and also serve. Israel was to serve as a chosen vessel for which the promises made with Abram, even from Genesis 3.15, would come forth. Now, whenever the people, when, when you're looking at the Old Testament, whenever the people of God, being Israel, whenever they gathered, it was understood that together they formed God's assembly. The Hebrew word for assembly, kahel, being connected to the late, later Greek word ekklesia. Israel assembled because they recognized that worship, the worship and the obedience that they were called to was one that, they, that was inherently corporate. They were called to worship and to adore God together. And together they formed his people. And when they gathered, they did so recognizing that God was amongst them. Such an understanding is particularly seen a few, in a few different uh, places, but particularly Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10, where it states, The day you stood before the Lord, your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Assemble the people before me, and I will let them hear my words so that they may lean, uh, learn to fear all the days they live on the earth and may instruct their children. You came near and stood at the base of the mountain, a mountain blazing with fire into the heavens, and then enveloped it in a totally black cloud. So if you understand what that passage is getting at, the nation of Israel, they assembled together, and God being, uh, this is a theophany, God presented himself a mountain blazing with fire into the heavens and enveloped it in a totally black cloud. So again, the nation of Israel gathered and God was in their midst. However, whilst being part of God's people in, under the, uh, was conditioned under the old covenant, upon the carrying out of certain external acts, such as circumcision, with, of course, the threat that of uh, being cut off from the people and promises if observance was not met, because if you weren't circumcised and out of the people of God you went. That's why, of course, uh, God, uh, one of the reasons, not necessarily the exclusive reason, why uh, God uh, threatened Moses with his life that Sephora quickly kicked into gear for. But we rem- must remember that a common motif or theme within the Old Testament prophets is that God always desired the heart. He always desired faith. Not simply outward action. And you see this time and time again, particularly as a common theme within the lesser or, uh, lesser or minor prophets. Uh, so again, you see in the, in, the, in the notes, Hosea, Amos, Micah, they all point and pick up upon this theme, and they're not the only ones to do so. So whilst, again, outward action was important in the Old Testament, in the old, under the Old Covenant, 
The main gist was always the heart. It was always the attitude, the behavior that God wanted, not simply the external acts. Not saying that the external acts were unnecessary or unneeded, but they weren't the main thing. Thus, there's countless occasions found throughout the Old Testament whereby God warns Israel to return to him. Because again, how many times did they fall away? And God, with his steadfast love, kept beckoning to come towards him, to come back to him. Again, Malachi 3.7 talks about return to me and I will return to you. So as to avoid the wrath which is to come. Yet through Israel had been as a nation disobedient to God. Not all within are to be considered or were to be considered disobedient. Scripture in the Old Testament differentiates and makes a distinction between national Israel and a faithful remnant. A faithful core within the nation that had been faithful in trusting in God. Such distinction is found specifically, uh, in fact you can find it in the pre-exilic, exilic and post-exilic prophetic literature. Uh, For those who... I'm sure you're all uh, familiar with the word exilic now. I think Todd actually uh, gave a definition of what it was uh, a couple of weeks back. But of course, exilic being the exile period to Babylon. Perhaps one of the chief examples of this, when we, we actually look at the faithful remnant and when God refers to this faithful cause, Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 8, uh, verses 11 to 13, whereby God states this. But now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. For they will sow in peace, the vine will yield its fruit, the land will yield its produce, and the skies will yield their dew. I will give the the remnant of this people all these things as an inheritance. It's worth noting that Zechariah also pronounces later on, that even the Philistines themselves, the Gentiles, those Philistines who were antagonistic and hostile to the Israelites, that they too will become a remnant for our God. They will be like a clan in Judah. But scripture is sitting here, it's, 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 it's stating that there is a remnant within Israel that despite the direction of the rest of the nation, this remnant, this faithful remnant clung fervently and faithfully to God. This is a distinction that carries into the New Testament, whereby John the Baptist, of course, avails upon the Jewish leaders of his time that physical descendancy was not itself sufficient to count upon the promises of God. As he states in Matthew 3 9, you know, God can raise up others, you know, just because you're the children of Abraham, God can raise these stones to be children of Abraham. But this is a particular theme that is developed much further in Galatians 3, and this has been a passage that we've been going over in some of the evenings. But specifically that children of Abraham, that great patriarch of Israel, were only really true children of him if they believed as Abraham did. That's Galatians 3 verse 7. Thus we start recognizing that Scripture itself paints a difference between national Israel and the, those who were physical descendants, relying on their physical lineage, but were disobedient. And those who, in the mold of Abraham, relied not on ancestry, but trusted by faith in God and his promises. Namely, that there would be a redeemer 
who would save people from their sins. Now, this is likely the differentiation that Paul's alluding to in Romans 9, uh, Romans 9, 6, which is succinctly put by the New Living Translation. Well, then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? No, for not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Now, as Abraham looked forward to this fulfillment of God's promises, and we know that, that Jesus himself said that Abraham looked forward to this day and what? He was glad. Just, just as Abraham looked forward to the fulfillment of God's promises, which were revealed to be Christ, so too the faithful remnant can, uh, can be seen through the incarnational ministry of Christ because they were eagerly looking forward to the fulfillment of the promise. And we see this right there from the very early onset of Luke in Simeon. Simeon, when he, when he sees the infant Jesus, he goes, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace, as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared, for, uh, you have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory to your people, Israel. Again, Simeon was speaking as someone who had faith in that promise to come and actually saw the promise come to fulfillment. Now, as we head into the ground now of the New Testament, we find that, as Simeon notes above, that because of Christ, the people of God expanded beyond the Israelites to also include the Gentiles, who had been grafted into the promise of Abraham. Now, the promise, this promise of redemption and eternal life that was promised in germinal form in, in Genesis 3.15 and progressively unveiled is not only for Jew, but through the Jews for all. Now, the Apostle Peter, picking up Old Testament themes, he draws out this expansion. So, again, Paul talks about the idea that the Gentiles have been grafted on to the people of God. But the Apostle Peter, picking up on Old Testament themes, he draws this expansion out further when he states in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 to 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Likewise, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 refers to the Israelites as the collective, undoubtedly spiritual, ancestors of both himself as well as the Corinthians. He recognizes there's a continuity. There's one people of God, the Jews and the Gentiles grafted onto them, the people of God. Now, through Israel and the church are not completely the same, and that needs to be, of course, emphasized. There's, obvious, there's an obvious connection between the two. Hopefully you can start seeing that, the people of God, that reference and who they are. As Benjamin um, Glad um, puts it, the apostles are passionately argued that the church stands in continuity with the people of God in the Old Testament, from Adam to Israel. Now, Israel, 
as we saw in Deuteronomy and, of course, in the Old Testament, we see that Israel was God's assembly. But And through the incarnational ministry of Christ, this assembly was widened to include those outside of Israel who are now able to be part of God's people. Without having to belong to any national structure. Again, when we became Christians, we don't all of a sudden sign up to be citizens of the nation of Israel. Yet at the same time, those who were now a part of the people of God were not simply so by virtue of physical descent. As once upon a time in the Old Testament, certainly we saw that in the life of Christ, they were able to say, I'm a child of Abraham, that's why I'm part of this family. The reality is they'd simply not so by virtue of physical descent, but only by faith. Faith is the instrument in how an individual becomes part of God's people. Again, God has always desired faith. The old and the new the same. And such, of course, um, faith is an instrument in how an individual becomes part of God's people. But, of course, the exercising of such faith, as many of us would undoubtedly attest, is only possible by God's gracious and sovereign choice. However, all of God's people are under the headship of the Son. So when we understand God's people, we need to understand that all of God's people are under the headship of the Son. We read in Ephesians 1, 22 to 23, that God subjected everything under Jesus' feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. The church, or the assembly, it's actually funny, um, just as a little bit of an aside, that the word church and how it became part of our common vernacular only did so because when, uh, during the early 17th century, after the Hampton Court, there were certain words that the Anglicans wanted to emphasise, bishop over elder, church over congregation. And so we, of course, come to that, uh, of that word church, but sometimes, again, when we look at that, we look at that word and just think, put too many connotations to it. That's why it's helpful, again, the the assembly, the, the people who gather, God's people who gather. The church is made up of all believers under Jesus' headship. And when a believer is saved, they're saved to the church, again, the community of God's people. Consequently, when we look at the nature of God's people throughout both Testaments, we recognize that there is a singularity in scope and purpose, regarding that this has always been a people saved by grace, who trust in God, and whilst restricted to Israel, with the exception, of course, of a few Gentiles who were grafted in, Rahab and and Ruth, uh, prior to the incarnate ministry of Christ, it was expanded to include all people from every nation, tribe and tongue, who, like the faithful remnant, trust now, this circles back to many ways, uh, the St. John's Park Baptist Article of Faith, which notes in Article 21 that we believe that God has a singular people comprised of all elect, both in the Old and New Testaments, which are saved by virtue of the New Covenant and the mediation of Christ. 
those in the old being saved through faith in the promise which was to come, and those in the new through faith in the promise received, which is Christ. So again, the people of God. If you want to understand the church, or rather the assembly, you need to understand that this is not something which is unique to the New Testament, but has continuity to the old. Now this community of all believers, which reaches both uh, beyond both time and space, has often been described historically as the universal church. So all saints in all times, in all places together, the universal church. And this universal church is the full number of God's elect who have had their names written in the Lamb's book of life, drawn from the past, the present, and the future. It encompasses and includes all who, by belief, are citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. However, this as a spiritual institution, this is a spiritual institution that cannot be seen yet. The universal church, of course, is that eschatological and beautiful picture of all people being gathered in worship of God. And so whilst we call it a church, of course, it's an assembly, it's something that, again, will have an eschatological realisation but is yet to be seen here and now. For now, it remains invisible. So if you have, uh, ever, that's a term that you'll hear a, a few times tonight, invisible. But we are, told, um, we are told of this eschatological reality where the assembly will become physically manifested when we worship God together in the new heavens. However, membership of this universal church, even through that universal church and when it finally assembles, that's in the future. Membership to that universal church is now. It's a spiritual reality for true believers who are drawn from all generations, from all nations, from all languages, and from all, and, uh, from all peoples. And whilst it's true that salvation is both personal and individual, God majestically combines all such partakers of salvation together to form his bride and the body of Christ. The reformer John Calvin expands on the spiritual unity when he states this, all the elect are so united in Christ that they are, uh, that, that as they are dependent on one head, they also grow together into one body. Being joined and knit together as are the limbs of a body, they are made truly one since they live together in one faith, hope and love and in the same spirit of God. For they have been called not only into the same inheritance of eternal life, but also to participate in one God and Christ. This idea of all believers together, past, present, future, is traditionally what we me- uh, what was meant when the term Catholic was used. It was used to convey the whole church of believers. Nowadays, of course, because of Roman Catholicism, we look at the word Catholic as being a naughty word, by word. But the word Catholic actually denotes uh, the whole church of believers and the unity that all believers had through Christ. It's really unfortunate that this word has been usurped and misappropriated by the Roman Catholic Church, which 
held that one's membership in the body of Christ was dependent upon being a member of its church. Again, there is no salvation now of the, outside of the Church of Rome. However, the earliest times, when you go into church history, the earliest times that the, that the, word, uh, the term Catholic was used, it simply meant, again, universal. One of the first creeds, the Nicene Creed, sought to articulate common orthodoxy and belief on this point by stating there exists one holy Catholic and apostolic church, a singular spiritual assembly that has been purchased and made holy by Christ and which was founded on the work of the apostles. Now, all Christians, as I mentioned, all Christians belong to this universal assembly of the saints, which is sometimes called the invisible church. It is an institution that, whilst not being able to be visibly seen yet, remains just as real as our membership in the local church. In fact, this is a significant point of the local church. It makes the invisible church visible. However, it's worth taking a detour here, just uh, for, for a little bit, and jumping into the 17th century. Now, if you understand the, the formation of, of doctrine within the church, there's been certain points and certain errors within uh, within the history of the church where there's been a lot of theological formulation on certain doctrines. So we look when we uh, look at uh, what Richard Bacellos covered a few uh, a month ago about the doctrine of, of course, of Christ or Christology. Uh, again, that was something which worked its way out for, uh, throughout the uh, third, fourth, fifth, into the sixth century. But when we jump into the 17th century, this is the period where the Puritans particularly somewhat and somewhat fervently debated the nature of the church and specifically whether there was an invisible church or if it was just visible. And if, there was, if it was just a visible church, then who were the members of the visible church? Again, the 17th century was the period of doctrinal formulation of ecclesiology, of the doctrine of the church. That was the real, um, real part where this was a lot of this was worked out. It's also where the Baptist really first appeared on the scene. Uh, despite some going, the Baptist go all the way back to John the Baptist. I don't think that's historically credible. Sorry. Um, now it may be obvious to us here today, sitting down in, in, in the seat, as to who uh, that perhaps only believers ought to be members of a church. We'd probably go, no, duh, of course, that should be the case. Those who are believers are members of the church, sure. But coming out of a millennia and a half of societies being Christian, Christian sometimes, with the expectation that everyone attends church and that the church you attended generally fell upon parish or geographical lines. So you live in this town, you live in, around Liverpool, you attend the churches in Liverpool. That's something you do. When these societies became professed uh, Christians, at least in name, leaders at this point in time, going back to again uh, the fourth, uh, going to back to the third and fourth century, had to wrestle with the composition and structure of the local churches and the, and the spiritual expectations that they had to put upon the people who lived within its borders. 
But as was common up until wrought away from the 3rd, 4th century and into Christian countries and Christian kingdoms and Christian empires where everybody, all citizens attended the church, this was all the way, uh, this was a common point that was also the case into the, early, into the late 16th and early 17th century in, uh, period of England, uh, England's history. Because attendance in English churches at this time were mandatory. You had to go. You didn't have a choice. Because if you didn't, well, under, under Queen Elizabeth I, non-attendance to churches was criminalized. You didn't go to church and off to jail, do you go? Now, obviously, that's not something that, uh, that many Christians had to kind of face today. But this was the reality. Everybody attended church. Believer and unbeliever, they all went to church. And that's a helpful point of differentiation between how they looked at churches historically and how we look at ch- and how they ended up looking at churches in the 17th century as the Puritans came in and started trying to reform how we worship, how we meet, and, and so forth. But this became a specifically a significant question for the Puritans who, building upon the work of the reformers, they started tackling the questions as to the precise nature of the church and how it was to be expressed. Most pressing of all these questions, though, was this understanding of the understanding and the composition of this visible church. What did it look like? Now, for centuries, again, prior to the Reformation, the visible church was defined as being the singular structure of Catholicism. The church was Rome. With each uh, local church being a subset of the universal church under the authority of the Bishop of Rome, the alleged successor to the Apostle Peter, and the bishops that were underneath him and and priests and so forth. However, despite the separation of the church from the Roman, uh, Roman orbit, it still continued to hold the Episcopalian model that saw power in the church retained in the hands of bishops, a class that started being historically defined as separate from that of an elder in the second century. However, most Puritans believe that the visible church was defined more at the local, uh, more at the level of the local church, and subsequently pushed for decentralization and reshaping of the established church. Yet this question raised another question. In the absence of bishops, if the bishops were removed, how were local churches to be governed? And at this point, that Puritans diverged amongst two different camps. Presbyterianism and Congregationalism. Now, the the first position was most prominently held, if you understand the history of the 17th century and how the Westminster Confession of Faith came to... to, um, be composed as well as the Westminster Assembly, the Presbyterians dominated the scene at that time period. And they generally believed that power, the power within the local church sat at the level of the church's presbytery. That is a local authority, so the presbytery is a local authority, and we'll go into this more in later weeks, a local authority that comprised the church's ministers and elders, and that these presbyteries, for the sake of better government and further edification of the church, ought to come together to form a synod. They ought to come together and form an assembly. So you have the local churches, you have the elders, and you have the pastor and elders or minister and elders in these churches, and these form sessions which form together 
presbytery and assemblies beyond that. And that, that, so you have a hierarchical element, which is a little bit different from an Anglican or Episcopalian model, where you have each church reports up to a bishop. And a bishop is the one who dictates how things are done. At least how it was back then, not necessarily today. Now, skipping a little bit, taking its cue from Calvin and Geneva, Presbyterianism was the main position held by a majority of the Puritans, as mentioned, and had early taken root in Scotland as well as the Reformed churches in the Dutch Republic. Congregationalism on the hand, so that's Presbyterianism, and like I said, we'll touch on that later on. But Congregationalism, which is more important for us, again, this is Baptist ecclesiology. Congregationalism, on the other hand, was particularly popular with the Puritans in the colonies of New England in the United States. And they believed that each church, each local church, ought to be autonomous, holding that instead of ministers being appointed by an outside authority, that each church was independent. And And as Congregationalist Puritan John Goodwin articulated, the churches gather their pastors. This became known as the Congregational Way as it became known, was uh, firmly of the opinion that the church was to be established upon a body of professed believers who, holding similar views, voluntarily gathered together to worship God and covenanted together, as in they went, I'm going to walk with you, you're going to walk with me, and ought together in Christ. Now, it's on this point, congregationalism, where Baptists came from, also known as Baptistic Congregationalists, because if you understand the history of Baptists, particularly where we came from as a denomination, a particular Baptist, we stemmed from Corrugationalist. And they recognized that as believers are saved to the spiritual body of Christ, they are called to participate in physical communion with other believers, assembling together with others who share a common profession and allegiance to Christ. These were the local assemblies, the local churches, and they were intended to be places where such individuals could walk, spiritually walk together in faith under the authority of Christ and by the word of God. Within scripture, it can be seen that early believers understood themselves to be bound together like this, distinguished from the world, and they would consciously gather in order to worship and praise the triune God, performing the ministry of the gospel and to live the Christian life in a way that was accountable and transparent, so that they together, again, I can't stress the corporate nature of Christianity, that they together could be conformed to the visage of Christ. Now, this understanding, this understanding of the local church being like this, local believers gathering together in order to walk with one another, building one another up, was to be the predominant view of both Congregationalist and then the Baptist. And this was, mean, um, uh, this was to mean that the universal church, which we covered earlier, which is, you know, all saints, believers from all time period, you know, expands and goes beyond both uh, space and time, that this universal church was understood to be made physically and visibly apparent through being expressed in a local church. So when we gather together visibly, we make physically manifest the invisible church. 
The distinction between the universal and local church can be seen, of course, throughout the uh, New Testament. So when you look at the idea, this idea that there's a universal church, there's an invisible church to which we all belong, all saints, past, present, and future, and then there's the local church, which where we physically gather as we are doing now, you can see this distinction being used by Scripture uh, but in, uh, in, a, in a few different areas, but particularly 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Because Paul speaks of how the Corinthians are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So they, they belong to the body of Christ. And they are the body of Christ and they're individually members of it. Indeed, at the start of this epistle, in the start of this letter, Paul addresses uh, the letter to the church at Corinth who were called to be saints together. Right? So called to be saints together. So he's writing to a church, a local church at Corinth, and then saying that they were called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. However, aside from those who were universally part of the spiritual institution. Paul also addresses, of course, so he talks about, obviously, that case, he's talking about you who gather together at Corinth, you're part of a greater body, right? So it's not just a local body and that's it. No, you're part of a, a bigger body as well. But, of course, Paul also addresses local churches throughout his letters to the church of God that is in Corinth, to the church of uh, the churches of Galatia, to the church of the Thessalonians. So in those cases, he's talking about the, those local bodies which gathered in those cities or places. Yet while local churches are the invisible church visibly and manif- physically manifested, it ought to be noted that not everyone within the visible church is necessarily a member of the invisible church. This is because whilst all true believers are members of the invisible and universal church, those who profess Christ but are unsaved due to not savingly believing in Christ are members only of the visible church, not members of the true invisible church. Thus, the local church as a physical entity can contain both saved and unsaved individuals. But the universal church being a spiritual entity will only include those who are saved. The difference between the visible church and the local church is that the visible church is, com- uh, sorry, uh, that the visible church is comprised of all local churches throughout history. Now, while the church is both a physical and a spiritual entity, Membership of the spiritual entity ought and does take precedence over the, uh, over the physical. The church continues being the church even if it is not formally and physically gathered. However, being a member of the spiritual should be evidenced visibly. After all, if we say that we are Christians, therefore we belong to the invisible church, but this belonging to the invisible church should be made apparent. It should be apparent in our lives and how we live. Because by being a believer, that means we belong to that invisible church. But again, by being a true believer, that should be made evident for our lives. Now, the the above points are fleshed out in the Second London Baptist Confession in the following paragraphs from chapter 26 on the church. 
where I, I just put in chapters 1, 2, uh, so articles 1, 2, 5, and 6, where it goes, Article 1, the universal church may be called invisible with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace. It consists of the full number of the elect who have been, are, or will be gathered into one under Christ her head. The church is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Article 2. All people throughout the world who profess the faith of the gospel and obedience to God through Christ in keeping with the gospel are and may be called visible saints. As long as they do not destroy their own profession by any foundational errors or unholy living, all local Corrugations ought to be made up of these. Article 5. In exercising the authority entrusted to him, the Lord Jesus, through the ministry of his word, by his spirit, calls to himself out of the world those who were given to him by his father. They accord so that they will live before him in all the ways of obedience that he prescribes for them in his word. Those who accord... He commands to live together in local societies or churches for their mutual edification and the fitting conduct of public worship that he requires of them while they are in the world. Article 6, and the final one for tonight. Uh, the members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly displaying and demonstrating in and by their profession and life their obedience to the call of Christ. They willingly agree to live together according to Christ's instructions, giving themselves to the Lord and to one another by the will of God, with the stated purpose of following the ordinances of the gospel. Now, again, that's, these uh, four articles are from Chapter 26 of the London Baptist, uh, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, or the 1689, so by all means feel free to reread that in your own time. But indeed, Baptists, and hopefully you can see that, Baptists like Congregationalists, they understood that the local church was to be comprised of visible saints. And this became a significant point of difference between both themselves, or us as Baptists, and our Presbyterian brethren, who hold to an understanding of a mixed body. Now, I don't know who here read the chapters from Everyone's a Theologian by R.C. Sproul, but Sproul, in, in these chapters, particularly in the first chapter, he talks about the local church being a mixed body, having unbelievers and believers, uh, wheats and tares together, which is a very Presbyterian way of understanding the church. Um, as, I, yeah, as I put here, the church will always, to cite R.C. Sproul, be made up of a combination of wheat and tares Yet for the Congregationalists, be those who held to infant baptism, so Peter baptism, or believers baptism, credo baptism, there was also a significant point of divergence. What do we do with infants? Ought infants be seen as members of the gathered church, the part of the visible community? Now to this, Congregationalists affirmed whereas the Baptists rejected mostly to, due to the nature that infants were unable to profess Christ. And that membership which, membership, which was linked to baptism, was only for those who professed faith. Infants, after all, could not be baptized autonomously. An infant uh, can't baptize themselves. 
but uh, could not be baptized autonomously. And as one of the first Baptist pastors, John Spilsbury, who's 17th century Baptist pastor, puts it, noted, doth none rise but such as are in visible union with Christ? As for invisible things we meddle not with, or to put it differently, if an, if an infant is unable to confess, then they cannot be baptized. And if they cannot be baptized, then they cannot be a member. The church has a duty only to permit visible saints or believers into the body. And whilst we cannot control the invisible element, we accord to ensure that only those in visible union with Christ are the church. Or, Or to restate it succinctly, only those who are likely to be members of the invisible should be members of the visible. The church was not to be a mixed body like the Presbyterians articulated, but rather it was to be only for those who are saints. So again, to be part of the local body would be to to recognize that you're a professing believer, you're a visible saint. And as as the Congregationalists and the Baptists went, well, the local churches should be comprised of only those visible saints. This is where it differed from Presbyterians who went, well, actually... All people can be part of the local church, the visible church. They may not be part of the invisible church, but they can still be part of the visible church. Whereas Congregationalists and Baptists went, no, the the visible church, as as much as possible, should reflect the invisible church. So the two are aligned, whereas in the Presbyterian case, the wheats and tares grow together. And that's to quote R.C. Sproul, so that's not an unfair representation uh, of, uh, of that view. So that's all I've uh, covered for tonight. Uh, again, uh, recognizing the time as well. Uh, and uh, like I said, this is just to give the foundations and how this will look like as we go into different parts, as we go into the, the structure of the church, as we go into the governance of the church or, or the ordinances of the church, um, you'll see as we cover upon it. But this is just foundational. So with that said, why don't we pray and then uh, the musicians can come up. Blessed Father, we thank you once again for the fact that we can delve into your word and, and, and plummet for its riches. Father, we recognize how deep your word is. Father, that your word has a lot to say on many things. Help us, Father, indeed, as we go away tonight, to be again students of your word, seeking to recognize that that the whole counsel of God is there for our benefit, to help equip us for all works of righteousness, to help equip us to glorify you in all ways. But, Father, let us not be a lazy reader, for we know that the word of God profits not the lazy. So, Father, we just pray for this in your son's most blessed name. Amen.